Welcome back to another relaxing literature podcast. Today's podcast is a continuation of Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift, and we are currently beginning chapter two. The Emperor of Lilliput, attended by several of the nobility, comes to see the author in his confinement. The Emperor's person and habit described learned men appointed to teach the author their language. He gains favor by his mild disposition. His pockets are searched, and his sword and pistols taken from him. When I found myself on my feet, I looked about me, and must confess I never beheld a more entertaining prospect. The country around appeared like a continued garden, and the enclosed fields, which were generally forty feet square, resembled so many beds of flowers. These fields were intermingled with woods of half a string, and the tallest trees, as I could judge, appeared to be seven feet high. I viewed the town on my left hand, which looked like the painted scene of a city in a theater. I had been for some hours extremely pressed by the necessities of nature, which was no wonder it being almost two days since I had last disburdened myself. I was under great difficulties between urgency and shame. The best expedient I could think of was to creep into my house, which accordingly I did, and shutting the gate after me, I went as far as the length of my chain would suffer, and discharged my body of that uneasy load. But this was the only time I was ever guilty of so uncleanly an action, for which I cannot but hope the candid reader will give me some allowance after he has maturely and impartially considered my case and the distress I was in. From this time, my constant practice was, as soon as I rose, to perform that business in open air at the full extent of my chain, and due care was taken every morning before company came that the offensive matter should be carried off in wheelbarrows by two servants appointed for that purpose. I would not have dwelt so long upon a circumstance that, perhaps at first sight, may appear not very momentous if I had not thought it necessary to justify my character in point of cleanliness to the world, which, I am told, some of my maligners have been pleased upon this and other occasions to call into question. When this adventure was at an end, I came back out of my house, having occasion for fresh air. The emperor was already descended from the tower, and advancing on horseback towards me, which had like to have cost him dear, for the beast, though very well trained, yet wholly unused in such a sight, which appeared as if a mountain moved before him, reared up on its hinder feet. But that prince, who is an excellent horseman, kept his seat till his attendants ran in and held the bridle while his majesty had time to dismount. When he alighted, he surveyed me round with great admiration, but kept beyond the length of my chain. He ordered his cooks and butlers, who were already prepared, to give me victuals and drink, which they pushed forward in sort of vehicles upon wheels till I could reach them. I took these vehicles and soon emptied them all. Twenty of them were filled with meat and ten with liquor. Each of the former afforded me two or three good mouthfuls, and I emptied the liquor of ten vessels, which was contained in earthen vials, into one vehicle, drinking it off at a drought and so I did with the rest. 
the empress and young princess of the blood of both sexes, attended by many ladies, sat at some distance in their chairs, but upon the accident that happened to the emperor's horse they alighted, and came near his person, which I am now going to describe. He is taller by almost the breadth of my nail than any of his court, which alone is enough to strike an awe into the beholders. His features are strong and masculine, with an Australian lip and arched nose, his complexion olive, his countenance erect, his body and limbs well-proportioned, all his motions graceful, and his deportment majestic. He was then past his prime, being twenty-eight years and three-quarters old, of which he had reigned about seven in great felicity and generally victorious. For the better convenience of beholding him, I lay on my side so that my face was parallel to his, and he stood but three yards off. However, I have had him since many times in my hand, and therefore cannot be deceived in the description. His dress was very plain and simple, and the fashion of it between the Asiatic and the European, but he had on his head a light helmet of gold, adorned with jewels and a plume on the crest. He had his sword drawn in his hand to defend himself if I should happen to break loose. It was almost three inches long. The hilt and scabbard were gold-enriched with diamonds. His voice was shrill, but very clear and articulate, and I could distinctly hear it when I stood up. The ladies and couriers were almost magnificently clad, so that the spot they stood upon seemed to resemble a petticoat spread upon the ground, embroidered with figures of gold and silver. His imperial majesty spoke often to me, and I returned answers, but neither of us could understand a syllable. There were several of his priests and lawyers present, as I conjectured by their habits, who were commanded to address themselves to me, and I spoke to them in as many languages as I had the least smattering of, which were high and low Dutch, Latin, French, Spanish, Italian, and lingua franca, but all to no purpose. After about two hours the court retired, and I was left with a strong guard to prevent the impertinence and probably the malice of the rabble, who were very impatient to crowd about me as near as they durst, and some of them had the impudence to shoot their arrows at me as I sat on the ground by the door of my house, whereof one very narrowly missed my left eye but the colonel ordered six of the ringleaders to be seized, and thought no punishment so proper as to deliver them bound into my hands, which some of his soldiers accordingly did, pushing them forward with the butt-ends of their pikes into my reach. I took them all in my right hand, put five of them into my coat-pocket, and as to the sixth, I made a countenance as if I would eat him alive. The poor man squalled terribly, and the colonel and his officers were in much pain, especially when they saw me take out my penknife. But I soon put them out of fear, for, looking mildly, and immediately cutting the strings he was bound with, I set him gently on the ground, and away he ran. I treated the rest in the same manner, taking them one by one out of my pocket, and I observed both of the soldiers and the people were highly delighted at this mark of my clemency, which was represented very much to my advantage at court. Towards night, I got with some difficulty into my house, where I lay on the ground, and continued to do so about a fortnight, during which time the emperor gave orders to have a bed prepared for me. 
Six hundred beds of a common measure were brought in carriages and worked up in my house. A hundred and fifty of their beds, sewn together, made up the breadth and length, and these were four double, which, however, kept me but very indifferently from the hardness of the floor that was of smooth stone. By the same computation, they provided me with sheets, blankets, and coverlets, tolerable enough for one who had been so long inured to hardships. As the news of my arrival spread through the kingdom, it brought prodigious numbers of rich, idle, and curious people to see me, so that the villages were almost emptied, and great neglect of tillage and household affairs must have ensued, if his imperial majesty had not provided by several proclamations and orders of state against this inconveniency. He directed those who had already beheld me should return home, and not present to come within fifty yards of my house without license from the court, whereby the secretaries of state got considerable fees. In the meantime, the emperor held frequent councils to debate what course should be taken with me, and I was afterwards assured by a particular friend, a person of great quality, who was as much in the secret as any, that the court was under many difficulties concerning me. They apprehended my breaking loose, that my diet would be very expensive, and might cause a famine. Sometimes they determined to starve me, or at least shoot me in the face and hands with poisoned arrows, which would soon dispatch me, but again they considered that the stench of so large a carcass might produce a plague in the metropolis, and probably spread through the whole kingdom. In the midst of these consultations, several officers of the army went to the door of the great council chamber, and, two of them being admitted, gave an account of my behavior to the six criminals above mentioned, which made so favorable an impression in the breast of his majesty and the whole board in my behalf, that an imperial commission was issued out, obliging all the villages, nine hundred yards round the city, to deliver in every morning six beeves, forty sheep, and other victuals for my sustenance, together with a proportionable quantity of bread and wine and other liquors, for the due payment of which his majesty gave assignments upon his treasury. For this prince lives chiefly upon his own domainus, seldom, except on, upon great occasions, raising any subsidies upon his subjects, who are bound to attend him in his wars at their own expense. An establishment was also made of six hundred persons to be my domestics, who had board wages allowed for their maintenance, and tents built for them very conveniently on each side of my door. It was likewise ordered that three hundred tailors should make me a suit of clothes, after the fashion of the country, that six of his majesty's greatest scholars should be employed to instruct me in their language, and lastly, that the emperor's horses and those of the nobility and troops of guards should be frequently exercised in my sight to accustom themselves to me. All these orders were duly put in execution, and in about three weeks I made great progress in learning their language, during which time the emperor frequently honored me with his visits, and was pleased to assist my masters in teaching me. We began already to converse together in some sort, and the first words I learnt were to express my desire that he would please give me my liberty, which I every day repeated on my knees. His answer, as I could comprehend it, was 
that this must be a work of time not to be thought on without the advice of his counsel, and that first I must lumos kelmen peso desmar lan imposo, that is, swear a peace with him and his kingdom. However, that I should be used with all kindness, and he advised me to acquire by my patience and discreet behavior the good opinion of himself and of his subjects. He desired I would not take it ill if he gave orders to certain proper officers to search me, for probably I might carry about me several weapons which must needs be dangerous things if they answered the bulk of so prodigious a person. I said his majesty should be satisfied, for I was ready to strip myself and turn up my pockets before him. This I delivered part in words and part in signs. He replied that by the laws of the kingdom I must be searched by two of his officers, that he knew this could not be done without my consent and assistance, and he had so good an opinion of my generosity and justice as to trust their persons in my hands, that whatever they took from me should be returned when I left the country, or paid for at the rate which I would set upon them. I took up the two officers in my hands, put them first into my coat pockets, and then into every other pocket about me, except my two fobs and another secret pocket, which I had no mind should be searched, wherein I had some little necessities that were of no consequence to any but myself. In one of my fobs there was a silver watch, and in the other a small quantity of gold in a purse. These gentlemen, having pen, ink, and paper about them, made an exact inventory of everything they saw, and when they had done, desired I would set them down, and that they might deliver it to the emperor. This inventory I afterwards translated into English, and is, word for word, as follows. Imprimis, in the right coat pocket of the great man-mountain, for so I interpret the words Quimbus Flestrin. After the strictest search, we found only a great piece of coarse cloth, large enough to be a footcloth for your majesty's chief room of state. In the left pocket, we saw a huge silver chest with a cover of the same metal, which we, the searchers, were not able to lift. We desired it should be opened, and one of us stepping into it found himself up to the mid-leg in some sort of dust, some part of whereof flying up into our faces set both of us sneezing for several times together. In his right waistcoat pocket we found a prodigious bundle of white thin substances folded over one another about the bigness of three men tied with a strong cable and marked with black figures which we humbly conceived to be writings, every letter almost half as large as the palm of our hands. In the left there was a sort of engine, from the back of which were extended twenty long poles resembling the palisados before your majesty's court, wherewith we conjecture the man-mountain combs his head, for we did not always trouble him with questions, because we found it a great difficulty to make him understand us. In the large pocket, on the right side of his middle cover, so I translate the word ramfulo, which by they meant my breeches, we saw a hollow pillar of iron, about the length of a man, fastened to a strong piece of timber larger than the pillar, and upon one side of the pillar were huge pieces of iron sticking out, cut into strange figures, which we know not what to make of. 
In the left pocket, another engine of the same kind. In the smaller pocket on the right side were several round, flat pieces of white and red metal of different bulk. Some of the white, which seemed to be silver, were so large and heavy that my comrade and I could hardly lift them. In the left pocket were two black pillars, irregularly shaped. We could not, without difficulty, reach the top of them as we stood at the bottom of the pocket. One was covered and seemed all of a piece, but at the upper end of the other there appeared a white round substance about twice the bigness of our heads. Within each of these was enclosed a prodigious plate of steel, which, by our orders, we obliged him to show us, because we apprehended they might be dangerous engines. He took them out of their cases and told us that in his own country his practice was to shave his beard with one of these and cut his meat with the other. There were two pockets which we could not enter. These he called his fobs. They were two large slits cut into the top of his middle cover, but squeezed close by the pressure of his belly. Out of the right fob hung a great silver chain with a wonderful kind of engine at the bottom. We directed him to draw out whatever it was at the end of that chain, which appeared to be a globe, half silver and half of some transparent metal, for, on the transparent side, we saw certain strange figures circularly drawn, and thought we could touch them till we found our fingers stopped by the lucid substance. He put this engine into our ears, which made an incessant noise like that of a watermill, and we conjecture it is either some unknown animal or the god that he worships, but we are more inclined to the latter opinion, because he assured us, if we understood him right, for he expressed himself very imperfectly, that he seldom did anything without consulting it. He called it his oracle, and said it pointed out the time for every action of his life. From the left fob he took out a net, almost large enough for a fisherman, but contrived to open and shut like a purse, and served him for the same use. We found therein several massy pieces of yellow metal, which, if they be real gold, must be of immense value. Having thus, in obedience to your majesty's commands, diligently searched all his pockets, we observed a girdle about his waist, made of the hide of some prodigious animal, from which on the left side hung a sword of the length of five men, and on the right a bag or pouch divided into two cells, each cell capable of holding three of your majesty's subjects. In one of these cells were several globes or balls of a most ponderous metal, about the bigness of our heads, requiring a strong hand to lift them. The other cell contained a heap of certain black grains, but of no great bulk or weight, for we could hold above fifty of them in the palms of our hands. This is an exact inventory of what we found about the body of the man-mountain, who used us with great civility and due respect to your majesty's commission, signed and sealed on the fourth day of the eighty-ninth moon of your majesty's auspicious reign. Clefrin Freelock, Marcy Freelock. When this inventory was read over to the emperor, he directed me, although in very gentle terms, to deliver up the several particulars. He first called out for my scimitar, which I took out, scabbard and all. In the meantime, he ordered three thousand of his choicest troops, who then attended him, to surround me at a distance, 
with their bows and arrows just ready to discharge, but I did not observe it, for mine eyes were wholly fixed upon his majesty. He then desired me to draw my scimitar, which, although it had got some rust by the sea-water, was in most parts exceedingly bright. I did so, and immediately all the troops gave a shout between terror and surprise, for the sun shone clear and the reflection dazzled their eyes as I waved the scimitar to and fro in my hand. His Majesty, who was a most magnanimous prince, was less daunted than I could expect. He ordered me to return it into the scabbard and cast it on the ground as gently as I could, about six feet from the end of my chain. The next thing he demanded me was one of the hollow iron pillars, by which he meant my pocket pistols. I drew it out, and at his desire, as well as I could, expressed to him the use of it, and charging it only with powder which, by the closeness of my pouch, happened to escape wetting in the area, an inconvenience against which all prudent mariners take special care to provide. I first cautioned the emperor not to be afraid, and then I let it off in the air. The astonishment here was much greater than at the sight of my scimitar. Hundreds fell down as though they had been struck dead, and even the emperor, although he stood his ground, could not recover himself for some time. I delivered up both my pistols in the same manner as I had done my scimitar, and even my pouch of powder and bullets, begging him that the former might be kept from fire, for it would kindle with the smallest spark and blow up his imperial palace into the air. I likewise delivered up my watch, which the emperor was very curious to see, and commanded two of his tallest yeomen of the guards to bear it on a pole upon their shoulders, as draymen in England do a barrel of ale. He was amazed at the continual noise it made, and the motion of the minute hand which he could easily discern, for their sight is much more acute than ours. He asked the opinions of his learned men about it, which were various and remote, as the reader may well imagine without my repeating, although, indeed, I could not perfectly understand them. I gave up my silver and copper money, my purse with nine large pieces of gold, and some smaller ones, my knife and razor, my comb and silver snuff-box, my handkerchief and journal-book. My scimitar, pistols, and pouch were conveyed in carriages to His Majesty's stores, but the rest of my goods were returned to me. I had, as I before observed, one private pocket which escaped their search, wherein there was a pair of spectacles which I sometimes use for the weakness of mine eyes, a pocket perspective, and some other little conveniences which, being of no consequence to the emperor, I did not think myself bound in honor to discover, and I apprehended they might be lost or spoiled if I ventured them out of my possession. Chapter 3 the author diverts the emperor and his nobility of both sexes in a very uncommon manner. The diversions of the court of Lilliput described, the author has his liberty granted him upon certain conditions. My gentleness and good behavior had gained so far on the emperor and his court, and indeed upon the army and people in general, that I began to conceive hopes of getting my liberty in a short time. I took all possible methods to cultivate this favorable disposition. The natives came, by degrees, to be less apprehensive of any danger from me. I would sometimes lie down and let five or six of them dance on my head. 
and at last the boys and girls would venture to come and play at hide-and-seek in my hair. I had now made good progress in understanding and speaking the language. The emperor had a mind one day to entertain me with several of the country shows, wherein they exceed all nations I have known, both for dexterity and magnificence. I was diverted with none so much as that of the rope dancers, performed upon a slender white thread, extended about two feet and twelve inches from the ground, upon which I shall desire liberty with the reader's patience to enlarge a little. This diversion is only practiced by those persons who are candidates for great employments and high favor at court. They are trained in this art from their youth and are not always of noble birth or liberal education. When a great office is vacant, either by death or disgrace, which often happens, five or six of these candidates petition the emperor to entertain his majesty and the court with a dance on the rope, and whoever jumps the highest without falling succeeds in the office. Very often the chief ministers themselves are commanded to show their skill and to convince the emperor that they have not lost their faculty. Vilmnap, the treasurer, is allowed to cut a caper on the straight rope at least an inch higher than any other lord in the whole empire. I have seen him do the somerset several times together upon a trencher fixed on a rope which is no thicker than a common pack-thread in England. My friend, Reldrasal, principal secretary for private affairs, is, in my opinion, if I am not partial, the second after the treasurer. The rest of the great officers are much upon a par. These diversions are often attended with fatal accidents, whereof great numbers are on record. I myself have seen two or three candidates break a limb, but the danger is much greater when the ministers themselves are commanded to show their dexterity, for, by contending to excel themselves and their fellows, they strain so far that there is hardly one of them who has not received a fall, and some of them two or three. I was assured that, a year or two before my arrival, Filmnap would infallibly have broke his neck if one of the king's cushions that accidentally lay on the ground had not weakened the force of his fall. There is likewise another diversion, which is only shown before the emperor and empress and first minister upon particular occasions. The emperor lays on the table three fine silken threads of six inches long, one is blue, the other red, and the third green. These threads are proposed as prizes for those persons whom the emperor has a mind to distinguish by a peculiar mark of his favor. The ceremony is performed in his majesty's great chamber of state, where the candidates are to undergo a trial of dexterity very different from the former, and such as I have not observed the least resemblance of in any other country of the new or old world. The emperor holds a stick in his hands, both ends parallel to the horizon, while the candidates advancing one by one sometimes leap over the stick, sometimes creep under it, backward and forward several times, according as the stick is advanced or depressed. Sometimes the emperor holds one end of the stick and his first minister the other. Sometimes the minister has it entirely to himself. Whoever performs his part with the most agility and holds out the longest in leaping and creeping, is rewarded with the blue-colored silk. The red is given to the next, and the green to the third, which they all wear girt twice round about the middle. And you see few great persons about this court who 
were not adorned with one of these girdles. The horses of the army and those of the royal stables, having been daily led before me, were no longer shy, but would come up to my very feet without starting. The riders would leap them over my hand as I held it on the ground, and one of the emperor's huntsmen upon a large courser took my foot, shoe and all, which was indeed a prodigious leap. I had the good fortune to divert the emperor one day after a very extraordinary manner. I desired that he would order several sticks of two feet high and the thickness of an ordinary cane to be brought to me, whereupon his majesty commanded the master of his woods to give directions accordingly, and the next morning six woodmen arrived with as many carriages drawn by eight horses to each. I took nine of these sticks, and fixing them firmly on the ground in a quadrangular figure, two feet and a half square, I took four other sticks, and tied them parallel at each corner, about two feet from the ground. Then I fastened my handkerchief to the nine sticks that stood erect, and extended it on all sides, till it was tight as the top of a drum, and the four parallel sticks, rising about five inches higher than the handkerchief, served as ledges on each side. When I had finished my work, I desired the emperor to let a troop of his best horses, twenty-four in number, come and exercise upon this plain. His majesty approved of the proposal, and I took them up one by one in my hands, ready mounted and armed, with the proper officers to exercise them. As soon as they got into order, they divided into two parties, performed mock skirmishes, discharged blunt arrows, drew their swords, fled and pursued, attacked and retired, and, in short, discovered the best military discipline I ever beheld. The parallel sticks secured them and their horses from falling over the stage, and the emperor was so much delighted that he ordered this entertainment to be repeated several days, and once was pleased to be lifted up and give the word of command, and with great difficulty persuaded even the empress herself to let me hold her in her close chair within two yards of the stage, when she was able to take in full view of the whole performance. It was my good fortune that no ill accident happened in those entertainments. Only once a fiery horse that belonged to one of the captains pawing with his hoof struck a hole in my handkerchief, and his foot slipping he overthrew his rider and himself, but I immediately relieved them both, and covering the hole with one hand, I set down the troop with the other in the same manner as I took them up. The horse that fell was strained in the left shoulder, but the rider got no hurt, and I repaired my handkerchief as well as I could. However, I would not trust to the strength of it any more in such dangerous enterprises. About two or three days before I was set at liberty, as I was entertaining the court with this kind of feat, there arrived an express to inform his majesty that some of his subjects riding near the place where I was first taken up had seen a great black substance lying on the ground, very oddly shaped, extending its edges round, as wide as his majesty's bedchamber, and rising up in the middle as high as a man. That it was no living creature, as they had first apprehended, for it lay on the grass without motion, and some of them had walked round it several times, that, by mounting upon each other's shoulders, they had got to the top, which was flat and even, and stamping upon it, they found that it was hollow within, that they humbly conceived it might be something belonging to the man-mountain, and if his majesty pleased, they would undertake to bring it with only five horses. 
I presently knew what they meant, and was glad at my heart to receive this intelligence. It seems, upon my first reaching the shore after our shipwreck, I was in such confusion that before I came to the place where I lay to sleep, my hat, which I had fastened with a string to my head while I was rowing, and had stuck on all the time I was swimming, fell off after I came to land. The string, as I conjecture, breaking by some accident, which I never observed, but thought my hat had been lost at sea. I entreated his imperial majesty to give orders that it might be brought to me as soon as possible, describing to him the use and nature of it, and the next day the wagoners arrived with it, but not in very good condition. They had bored two holes in the brim within an inch and a half of the edge, and fastened two hooks in the holes. These hooks were tied by a long cord to the harness, and thus my hat was dragged along for about half an English mile. But the ground in that country was extremely smooth and level, and it received less damage than I expected. Two days after this adventure, the emperor, having ordered that part of his army which quarters in and about his metropolis to be in readiness, took a fancy of diverting himself in a very singular manner. He desired that I would stand like a colossus, with my legs as far asunder as I conveniently could. He then commanded his general, who was an old experienced leader and a great patron of mine, to draw up the troops in close order and march them under me, the foot by twenty-four abreast and the horse by sixteen, with drums beating, colors flying, and pikes advanced. This body consisted of three thousand foot and a thousand horse. His majesty gave orders upon pain of death that every soldier in this march should observe the strictest decency with regard to my person, which, however, could not prevent some of the younger officers from turning up their eyes as they passed under me, and, to confess the truth, my breeches were at that time in so ill a condition that they afforded some opportunities for laughter and admiration. I had sent so many memorials and petitions for my liberty, that his majesty at length mentioned the matter first in the cabinet, and then in a full council, where it was opposed by none, except the Skyrish Bulgolum, who was pleased, without any provocation, to be my mortal enemy. But it was carried against him by the whole board, and confirmed by the emperor. That minister was Galbay, or admiral of the realm, very much in his master's confidence, and a person well-versed in affairs, but of a morose and sour complexion. However, he was at length persuaded to comply, but prevailed that the articles and conditions upon which I should be set free, and to which I must swear, should be drawn up by himself. These articles were brought to me by Skyrish Bulgolum in person, attended by two under-secretaries and several persons of distinction. After they were read, I was demanded to swear to the performance of each of them, first in the manner of my own country, and afterwards in the method prescribed by their laws, which was to hold my right foot in my left hand, and to place my middle finger of my right hand on the crown of my head, and my thumb on the tip of my right ear. But because the reader may be curious to have some idea of the style and manner of expression peculiar to that people, as well as to know the article upon which I recovered my liberty, I have made a translation of the whole instrument, word for word, as near as I was able, where I here offer to the public. Gulbasto mamarem evlame, gordido chefen muli uli gu, most mighty emperor of Lilliput, delight and terror of the universe, 
whose dominions extend 5,000 blue drugs, about 12 miles in circumference, to the extremities of the globe, monarch of all monarchs, taller than the sons of men, whose feet press down to the center, and whose head strikes against the sun, at whose nod the princes of the earth shake their knees, pleasant at the spring, comfortable as the summer, fruitful as autumn, dreadful as winter, his most sublime majesty proposes to the man-mountain, lately arrived at our celestial dominions, the following articles which, by a solemn oath, he shall be obliged to perform. First, the man-mountain shall not depart from our dominions without our license under our great seal. Second, he shall not presume to come into our metropolis without our express order, at which time the inhabitants shall have two hours' warning to keep within doors. Third, the said man-mountain shall confine his walks to our principal high-roads, and not offer to walk or lie down in a meadow or field of corn. Fourth, as he walks the said roads, he shall take the utmost care not to trample upon the bodies of any of our loving subjects, their horses or carriages, or take any of our subjects into his hands without their own consent. Fifth, if an express requires extraordinary dispatch, the man-mountain shall be obliged to carry in his pocket the messenger and horse a six days' journey, once in every moon, and return the said messenger back, if so required, safe to our imperial presence. Sixth, he shall be our ally against our enemies in the island of Blefuscu, and do his utmost to destroy their fleet, which is now preparing to invade us. Seventh, that the said man-mountain shall, at his times of leisure, be aiding and assisting to our workmen in helping to raise certain great stones towards covering the wall of the principal park and other our royal buildings. Eighth, that the said man-mountain shall, in two moons' time, deliver in an exact survey of the circumference of our dominions by a computation of his own paces round the coast. Lastly, that upon his solemn oath to observe all the above articles, the said man-mountain shall have a daily allowance of meat and drink sufficient for the support of 1,724 of our subjects with free access to our royal person and other marks of our favor, given at our palace at Belkabarak, the twelfth day of the ninety-first moon of our reign. I swore and subscribed to these articles with great cheerfulness and content, although some of them were not so honorable as I could have wished, which proceeded wholly from the malice of Skyrish Bogolam, the High Admiral, whereupon my chains were immediately unlocked and I was at full liberty. The Emperor himself, in person, did me the honor to be by at the whole ceremony. I made my acknowledgments by prostrating myself at His Majesty's feet, but he commanded me to rise, and after many gracious expressions, which, to avoid the censure of vanity, I shall not repeat, he added, that he hoped that I should prove a useful servant, and well deserve all the favors he had already conferred upon me, or might do for the future. The reader may please to observe that, in the last article of the recovery of my liberty, the emperor stipulates to allow me a quantity of meat and drink sufficient for the support of 1,724 Lilliputans. Some time after, asking a friend at court 
how they came to fix on that determinate number, he told me that his majesty's mathematicians, having taken the height of my body by the help of a quadrant and finding it to exceed theirs in the proportion of twelve to one, they concluded from the similarity of their bodies that mine must contain at least 1,724 of theirs, and consequently would require as much food as was necessary to support that number of Lilliputians, by which the reader may conserve an idea of the ingenuity of that people, as well as the prudent and exact economy of so great a prince. Thank you so much for joining me for another relaxing literature podcast. This has been chapters two and three of Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting me. I'm on Patreon at Relaxing Literature. And also please consider following me on Instagram at Relaxing Literature or on Twitter at Relaxing Lit A-S-M-R to leave your comments, questions, or suggestions. Thank you so much and good night.